We get along like a house on fire. To be honest, I, I'm, I have no idea what that means. Um, uh, maybe it's because you, you can't separate a house from its fire, uh, if it's on fire. Uh, I actually resisted the urge to Google it to find out exactly what it means so that that mystery can live on in my mind. But the point of the saying is, we get along really, really well. We get along really, really well. Who do you get along with really well at church? I'm sure you, like me, uh, have people that you naturally get along with, uh, that life circumstances naturally put, to, put you together, and you, know, you probably uh, have many interests with that same person, and personalities mix, and, and it really works, and you probably get along like a house on fire with that person. I'm sure you would, even if you're not the emotional type or the particularly expressive type, admit, if pressed, that you love them, whether you like using those words or not. Well, what about those that you don't have an easy or natural relationship with at church? Good relationships, after all, are built on commonalities, they're built on personalities, chemistry, time, and if many or any of those factors that make a good relationship are missing, then, well, you have less incentive and probably less desire to try and invest in that relationship, right? After all, this is how we normally navigate our relationships. But even if it's difficult for you to get along with someone at church, perhaps even if you don't like them, do you love them? When Jesus asked Peter in John 21 if he loved him, and Peter replied three times, Lord, you know that I love you. What does Jesus say? Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. If you love me, love my sheep. Do you love Christ's body? Do you love his church? And if you don't, where could that love come from? How could you possibly grow in loving his body? Well, that is the question before us in this morning's passage. And so with our Bibles open and our hearts and our minds open, let's explore what God's Word has to say to us today. Let's begin with point one, segregated supper. Let's read from verse 17 in 1 Corinthians 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. One of my favorite movies ever uh, is the 2007 remake of the musical film Hairspray. The music is incredible, the story is excellent, the drumming is fantastic. It's set in Baltimore in the US in the 1960s when racial segregation divided society in very obvious ways. African Americans weren't considered human enough to be allowed to mix with white Americans on buses or in many other public places. And of course, they weren't allowed on the all-white Corny Collins show. They were segregated, separated, because... White Americans in society considered African Americans to be beneath them. This is the kind of segregation we see in this passage. Not racially motivated, but where one group in society, one group in the church, considers another group in the church to be beneath them. You might remember from last week that Paul commended 
the Corinthians. He used the same word, the Corinthian church, for the way that they kept the teachings that he passed down to them. We looked at that last week. But here, he doesn't say that at all. He says the complete opposite. There is a definite contrast between last week's passage and this week's where Paul is quite clear that the Corinthians have failed to take fully into account all that the Lord's Supper involved. He does not commend them, is what he says. And you'll notice that his use of the term here, come together, in this passage, which he says a few times, Paul uses it in a rather official sense. This is not just Christians getting together to hang out with one another, to play cards and to watch hairspray. Right? This is Christians coming together as a church. He uses that intentionally, and that's the exact phrase that he says in verse 17. But he does also say there's a problem. There's a problem as the church gathers. When they gather as a church, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Why? Well, Paul says, in the first place, because there are divisions among you. And we already know that this is a problem in the Corinthian church because Paul spent the first four chapters of this letter addressing the issue of different uh, people wanting to follow their favorite teachers and creating factions over that. We see that in 1 Corinthians 1.12. And we know that division was also a problem when it came to spiritual gifts, which Paul goes on to talk about right after this in chapters 12 to 14. Well, it seems that this issue is present even here in the very act, the very thing which is supposed to unite the church, there is division. It's in the Lord's Supper where the church is meant to come together and be one body, and yet here the Corinthian church is segregated. I believe it in part, he says, which he might be saying because he doesn't want to sound like he's taking sides, that's possible. Or if you've got an ESV with a text note, you'll see that uh, this can also be translated as a certain report, meaning that Paul believes a certain report that has come to him. And given that we know that Chloe's people have brought reports to him from, we know that from verse 11 of chapter 1, it's quite probable that this is what he's talking about. He believes this report that has come to him. And Paul's next sentence in the passage is a little bit tricky. Why would he say that there must be factions among them in order that those who are genuine among them may be recognized? It's a difficult sentence, and there's been no shortage of suggestions as to what Paul actually means here. I'll share with you the two that I think that are most plausible. First, uh, it could be that Paul is referring to the sovereign work of God, that God is revealing those who are genuinely saved and those who aren't, and that these are the reasons why the factions show up and they do occur. That's possible. Secondly, it might also be referring to what uh, one commentator calls bitter irony, which is that Paul is saying that this is what happens when the elite choose to separate themselves from the poor. Division is unavoidable. If I had to choose one, I'd probably go with that second interpretation, seeing as it fits the context best, I think. And the first option, uh, certainly possible theologically, but it seems to come out of the blue. Uh, so I, I think Paul, using this phrase, ironically, is likely what he's doing. Uh, we can ask him in glory what he actually meant, along with everything else he says. But whatever the precise details of what Paul is trying to say with that line, what is clear is that his point in this passage is that divisions among them are a very bad thing and that it is not a good thing at all. But how is this division showing up? Well, let's read from verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. When you come together, he says, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, this ought to make us pause. 
Obviously, the Corinthians here were intending to practice the Lord's Supper. That's what they were trying to do. But Paul is he's stamping on that and saying, even though you might think you're celebrating the Lord's Supper, you are actually not. He's saying that these divisions, this segregation is so serious, what you're doing is so serious that it actually turns your celebration of the Lord's Supper into not the Lord's Supper. Now, you can turn the Lord's Supper into not the Lord's Supper in many ways, of course. You could turn it into a meal about remembering social injustices, like I saw on Twitter one time, where Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis ate Skittles and drank iced tea with her church to commemorate the final meal of Travion Martin, a 17-year-old African-American who was shot by another man during an altercation. Yeah. Or you could turn it into a meal that is a repeated sacrifice of Jesus' actual body for the forgiveness of sin, as Roman Catholics believe. In their view, this ritual is necessary in order to keep topping you up with grace so that you can stay in the saved category. Without it, you might plummet into being unsaved. Or you could do something that no one else has thought of, like, I don't know, add fish to the meal and say, oh, this represents Jesus' fish and how we're meant to be fishers of men. And, you know, if you do any of those things and a whole host of others I'm sure that you could think of then it is no longer the Lord's Supper that you are celebrating you are doing a ritual of your own making that has nothing to do with Jesus And Paul here says that what the Corinthians are doing is on the same level as doing something like that. They have turned their celebration of the Lord's Supper into not the Lord's Supper. Well, how exactly does that play out? What does that look like? Well, he says, each one goes ahead with his own meal. Now, some have suggested that the problem in Corinth was that the whole church was supposed to be eating together and they were meant to wait for each other, but they didn't. Some were, you know, and because the rich, they they didn't wait for the poor because the poor people had to work longer and so they arrived later and the rich would just, you know, eat first and then they'd eventually eat too much and get drunk. Uh, That's that's what Paul is referring to here. That's possible. That's certainly a possible interpretation. Another way that this verb here could be translated is that each one devours his own meal, that that it's not a sense of eating before others, but it's actually prioritizing themselves first. So I think that this reading actually makes a lot of sense in light of the context of the passage, as well as the the cultural context. Because you see, in ancient Roman culture, it was normal for the elites in society to gorge themselves at feasts while slaves and the poor ate less or perhaps even went hungry. And it was the same at social events in homes. I mentioned last week that Roman homes were designed in such a way that it was possible for the public to come in and have a look at what's what's going on. And of course, as we see from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 24, the church expected unbelievers and outsiders to come into the gathering. And last week I also promised some pictures. So here they are. Here is a, a Roman house, a domus, domus. And this was a typical middle-class home. This is the kind of house that the Corinthian church likely would have met in. It's possible that they met in wealthier people's homes, uh, which, just like wealthier people's homes today, were bigger and had more rooms. <laughs> But you'll see that it's broken up into different rooms in different areas and they all served different purposes. This room here that you're seeing, number one, is the vestibulum. It's basically the the front entry. It's kind of like a foyer. And you can see there how it opens out onto the street. And so if something like a church gathering was going on and it was open to visitors, then it was much easier for somebody to come in and observe 
what was going on in the meeting. This here is called the atrium. And this is the main room in the house. This is where most of the entertaining would be done for guests. Similar perhaps to like a lounge or, or something like that today. It's quite likely that this is where the gatherings of the church happened in this main meeting area when they met in churches. And this is called the triclinium. It's called that because there would be three couches, tri meaning three, where important guests could recline and eat. Now, reclining and eating doesn't really happen so much these days, uh, but it was more common back then. And it's here that guests, particularly the esteemed guests, the, the ones who of higher status would, could come and indulge in choice food and wine. Now, I tell you this because it's quite possible that what Paul is referring to in our passage was this kind of separation of the elite in the triclinium from the poorer and the more common members in the atrium. I can't tell you that for a fact, that that's exactly what was going on. But whether that is actually what happened or not, this is the sense of what is going on in the Corinthian church. And so when the church gathered together, it's likely that they followed the Roman custom of bringing their own meals and, as it seems from this passage, reinforcing the social segregation by keeping the rich and the poor separate. The rich feasted on their food and drank till they'd had too much, wanting to, you know, show off how, how important and rich they were. And doing that and eating and and. and devouring the food, gorging themselves without a single care or a single thought for their brothers and sisters who were going hungry. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. You can hear Paul's indignation, his anger at such a thing happening. What does verse 22 say? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. What? Seriously, guys? Not only are you once again trying to bring the values of Corinth into the church, which we've seen already so many times throughout this letter, not only are you trying to maintain the class divisions of Roman society in the church, you're completely forgetting what it means to be the church. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? It's another way of saying, seriously guys, you don't come to church so that you can stuff your face and, and show off how rich and important you are and boast about it. And Paul again tells them that he doesn't commend them in this. He says it the second time. Saying that twice, he's showing that he's clearly very fired up about it. The elites in the church were humiliating their brothers and sisters by not sharing with them, by not caring for them by thinking that they were a cut above the rest and that they were callously going ahead with their meals even to the point of getting drunk. And they did it without a second thought for their brothers and sisters. The class divisions that existed in society, as far as they concerned, were ones that continued on in the church. Being known as someone who was part of society's elite was far more important to them than their fellow church members. This is what made the Corinthian church's practice of the Lord's Supper not the Lord's Supper. It was a segregated supper. There was division in the church and they didn't treat one another with the same love that Christ loved them for, with. The word communion itself reminds us of this truth. 
It comes from the Latin word communio, which means fellowship, mutual participation, sharing. And that's why I've titled this sermon after this commonly used term for the Lord's Supper. When we call it communion, we are communing with Jesus. We have fellowship with Jesus. Remember what that means, which we looked at in chapter 10 just a few weeks ago. To be in communion with Jesus is to be on team Jesus. It's to be all about what Jesus is all about. It's to live for Jesus, to love Jesus, to serve Jesus. And if you're in communion with Jesus, then you are necessarily in communion with His body. That is His church. You've been grafted into it. And it is this dimension of communion that Paul here is saying is an essential part of taking it. If you miss this, then you've missed communion. If you miss this, you might as well be eating Skittles and drinking iced tea. And so after rebuking the Corinthians for this, Paul goes on to remind them why this unity as the body of Christ is an essential part of the Lord's Supper. And that brings us to point two. Main course. This is the main course. Here is the whole point of communion. Here is the reason why we take it and what it means. Now, just to be clear, this passage that we're about to dive into, this section, doesn't say everything, well, sorry, this whole passage, doesn't say everything that needs to be said about communion. There are other accounts of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's worth considering what else the celebration of the Lord's Supper actually means. Now, you're going to pick up some of that today, but not all of it. This passage focuses on this particular aspect of it. And I say that because it's so crucial for us to see that Paul, he, he doesn't just randomly drop this in to remind the Corinthians of, of what Jesus instituted. The word for, at the beginning of this section, he's put it, shows that he has put it here for a purpose. Paul has put this retelling of the Lord's Supper here in, to address what it is that he has just said. He's saying, I will not commend, them for, commend you for this division in the church while you take the Lord's Supper. Why? Because this is the Lord's Supper. Let's read from verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now you might be wondering, how on earth does this address the issue of unity and division in the body when the church gathers and takes the Lord's Supper? Why does he say for at the beginning and then connect it to the problem of division? Well, the first thing to note is that this really is what Paul is doing. He's addressing this issue by retelling the, the recounting of the Lord's Supper. Not only do we know it because he says for, but also because at the start of verse 27, he says whoever, therefore, again calling back to what he's just said. And so, by recounting what the Lord's Supper is, Paul instructs the Corinthians on the right practice of it. And that's the first thing we need to notice. And to be honest, this is one of the first things I noticed as I was studying this passage. Because you see, I'd, I'd grown so accustomed to hearing this section out of context, as is often done in churches, that I was actually genuinely surprised to find that Paul has it here for a reason. And so how does this retelling address the problem? Well, Paul here is passing on the instructions that he received from the Lord. Whether that's through a direct vision, which we know from Acts happened with Paul, 
or whether it's through the apostles' teaching, we can't be sure. We don't know how he received it. But we can be sure that Paul is saying that these are instructions that he didn't make up. He's not saying, hey, here's what I think you should do. He's saying, no, 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 I, I passed on to you what the Lord himself gave me. He's saying it's Jesus who instituted the Lord's Supper. And that's what Paul has passed on. And of course, what follows is almost exactly the same as what we find in the Gospels. There are some minor differences between them, which might be intentional changes. For example, it's possible that Paul has rearranged the wording in the Greek of this is my body to highlight the Corinthians' selfishness in contrast to uh, Jesus' selflessness. That's possible. But overall, Paul's point here is to point the Corinthians to the ordinance that Jesus himself instituted. Jesus himself has given them this ordinance. When Paul says on the night when he was betrayed, which is unique to Paul, he is giving this a definite time stamp. As we know from the Gospels, Judas betrayed Jesus to the chief priests after this supper. And so this is clearly the event that Paul is referring to. And this marks this supper as a significant act of Jesus's. This wasn't just an ordinary supper. This wasn't just Jesus and his disciples getting together to have a meal. And that makes sense, doesn't it? The fact that Jesus takes the bread and the cup and he tells his disciples that they represent his body and his blood, I mean, that's, that's not something that you do, you know, whenever you're having a meal with friends, right? But what's even more amazing about this is that Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And the Passover is the celebration that the Jews kept to remember God rescuing them from Egypt. You can read about it in Exodus. And the Passover was no small deal. It was a significant marker of Jewish identity. So for Jesus to come along and to do this while taking the Passover with his disciples, for him to say that this is the new covenant in verse 25, that is nothing short of radical A covenant, as we learn from the Bible, has several components to it. At its most basic level, it is an agreement between two parties. You might, you might have heard marriages being talked of as a marriage covenant. It's an agreement between two parties with promises made between them. In the Bible, maybe also in marriage, there are rewards and blessings promised for obedience, and there are punishments and curses for disobedience. My marriage doesn't have curses, just so you know. But particularly in the Bible, that's what we see. At Mount Sinai, after Moses gives the people of Israel the law and God enters into a covenant with them, we read this. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. This is the Israelites committing to the covenant that they made with God. And of course, it didn't take them long for them to break that. It's very soon after this that they are suddenly worshipping a golden calf. And if you read through the history of Israel in the Old Testament, you'll find many instances where they received blessing for their obedience and they received punishment for their disobedience. The books of Kings and Chronicles are a really good example of this. And even in God's covenant with David, which we see in 2 Samuel 7, there is a foreshadowing of a better covenant to come that is, that's not founded on the imperfection of an earthly king, that's not founded on the imperfection of a group of people in, in not being able to keep the actual, their side of the covenant. There is a foreshadowing of a better covenant, and that's why Matthew takes great care to show how Jesus is part of David's line, and he explicitly names him at the beginning of his book. 
Another example? Well, as we read earlier in Jeremiah 31, here we find God's promise and the pointing forward to a new covenant that will change hearts. You see, Jeremiah 31 reveals that this new covenant is one where God himself will keep it. This is what Jesus means when he says, instituting the Lord's Supper, that this is the new covenant. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the once-for-all atonement for our sins, which opens the door for us to enter through faith in him. And as a result, God gives us new hearts that seek to love and obey him. As one theologian put it, rather than do this and live, the new covenant is one of live and do this. Rather than do this and live, the new covenant is one of live and do this. The new covenant is one of it's done, it is finished. So live. And this is the beating heart of Christianity. This is the beating heart of what it means to love and follow Jesus. Without it, our lives are just more ways of trying to earn our way, are just more ways of trying to find life. Without it, you might as well be a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist. Whether you believe in God or not, without the new covenant, your life will always be one of do this and live. Without the new covenant, you will always be seeking for life in something you can do. Get recognition for your life's work. Make your mark on history. Raise children who will make a contribution to society. Be a good person. And you will live. That is not the way of the new covenant. And this is what Jesus is tapping into when he says that this cup is the new covenant in his blood. He is throwing back to Jeremiah 31 and showing how it is through his body and his blood that a person enters the new covenant where their sins are forgiven and their heart is changed and they know the Lord, love the Lord and seek to obey the Lord. How? Because it's through Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross, through the giving up of his body and his blood, that we can receive forgiveness for our sin. On the cross, Jesus received the penalty of God's righteous wrath for our sin as our substitute. And it's by turning from our own sin and trusting in him that our hearts are made alive by the Holy Spirit. And it is through that that we enter into the new covenant. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus, we can live and do this. This is the gospel. This is the good news that you will never be able to do enough good to be able to stand before a holy and righteous God and escape His judgment for your sin. But that by His grace and through faith in Jesus, you may be saved from it and live a life pursuing Him, knowing Him, following Him. That's what makes it the new covenant. And what remains the same is that this new covenant is also a 
communal covenant. God created a people for himself in Israel. And he creates a people for himself in Jesus. The new covenant isn't just about a bunch of individuals getting saved. It's about God saving a new people, a new community for himself. We know this because of this language of covenant and because the description of the Lord's Supper here and in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, always uses the second person plural. And so that is, if we wanted to be Uh, sound more bogan, but be more accurate. In these passages, it's not just one you, but yous. Not just one you, but many yous. We, We sometimes miss this in English because the same word is used for both singular and plural. So when Jesus instituted the supper, he was saying that yous, his disciples, who would then gather as churches, will remember me in this supper until I come again. And that's where Paul goes next with this sentence that is also unique to him. Let's read verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As often as yous eat this bread and yous drink this cup, yous proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion has a looking back aspect, remembering what Jesus has done. It has a present aspect as we remember God's grace in our lives today. And it has a future aspect where we look forward eagerly to the day when Christ will come again. And it has a gospel-proclaiming aspect. In the very act of taking the Lord's Supper and in declaring what it is that we are remembering, we are telling all who hear, everyone who, who might be witnesses to what we are doing, We are saying, this is the good news, the gospel that Jesus came to proclaim. And this is the new covenant that we will continue to proclaim until he comes again. Or until we die, whichever comes first. And so if you're here this morning and if you're not somebody who has entered into the new covenant by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus, then it is our deepest desire that you would do so. And when it comes to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do later on, I encourage you to observe and to consider your own spiritual state and your own need for salvation. Because when we take the Lord's Supper, that is what we're proclaiming. And part of that proclamation is that it it is the thing that we would love the most for you. To turn from sin and trust in Christ and join us in the celebration of this meal. That is why... Paul dropped this in here. The covenant, the new covenant, creates a community. It creates a community united in Jesus. To hang out with all your rich mates in the triclinium, to boast about being the upper crust of society without sparing a crust for your brothers and sisters, who have less, to behave as though that social distinctions of this world still matter even in the church, is to violate the Lord's Supper and to turn it into something that is not the Lord's Supper. As Christians, this meal isn't only about you and Jesus. It is absolutely about you and Jesus. But it is not only 
about you and Jesus. And to make it only about you and Jesus is to make it into something that God never intended. This is why Paul gets so worked up about this. This ordinance, this celebration of the Lord's Supper has two essential components in it that call us to remember our communion with Jesus in the New Covenant and our communion to His people in the New Covenant. Some people refer to these as the vertical dimension, our communion with God, and the horizontal dimension, our communion with one another. In many ways, the cross is such a fitting symbol for what Christ has accomplished on it because it has both a vertical beam and a horizontal beam. When we are united to Christ, we are united to His people. I would normally now encourage us to think about how this applies to us, but Paul does a much better job of that than me, so we should keep looking at what he has to say about it. And that takes us to our final point. Just desserts. They're all food-themed, just in case you... Let's read from verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup or the Lord of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Does that first line land differently for you in this context now? As I mentioned before, when Paul says, therefore, he connects this section to the previous one, which was connected to the one before that, and it's also connected to the next section where Paul says, so then... Do you see? This whole passage that we're looking at this morning is a chain that connects everything together. Everything links back to the beginning, to the problem of division and the segregated supper. I would call it a golden chain, but people already use that term to refer to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. So perhaps we can call this a food chain. One dad joke per sermon allowed. But this is absolutely essential to grasp if we're to understand this section rightly. You see, many people throughout the ages have felt condemned by this verse because they latch onto the words unworthy manner and they think that it means that they need to have been good enough this week in order to be able to take it. And so they say, they think to themselves, oh no, I, I sinned and, I, and I've, uh, I still haven't paid back that money that I owed to that person or I haven't asked for their forgiveness. And they feel condemned because they think, no, that means that I am unworthy to take the Lord's Supper. That is a lie. And it is one of the most tragic lies to have taken hold of Christians. To come to communion thinking that to, that exact thought is to completely change the message of communion from live and do this back to do this and live. That is not the gospel. We come to the table remembering that we are not worthy to take it and that it's only because of God's grace and the new covenant in Jesus' blood that we can be made worthy. That's why we so desperately need it. You don't measure your unworthiness by whether or not you've been a so-called good person this week or not. The whole point of the gospel is that such a task is impossible. And that is the reason we need Jesus. 
That's the reason why we come to the table hungry and humble, ready to remember and celebrate God's mercy and grace shown to us. We come to the table ready to confess our sin and gladly receive His forgiveness in Jesus. Can you see what a difference it makes to read this passage, this sentence in context? Whoever therefore eats and drinks in an unworthy manner. You don't have to try and guess what it means. Paul's already told us. If you are intentionally dividing the church along social class or status lines, if you are intentionally treating a brother or sister as though they are beneath you, then you are coming to the table in an unworthy manner. Why? Because that exposes the fact that you have not humbled yourself before the cross. It exposes that you have not truly believed that the only thing that separates you from eternal death and eternal life is faith in Jesus alone. And it exposes that you do not believe that your brother or sister, whatever their status on earth, has the same status as you in the new covenant. That it's not because of you, it's because of Him. If you come to the Lord's Supper unrepentant of your sin and thinking that you don't need Jesus' forgiveness, then yes, that is an unworthy manner and you shouldn't take it. But if you come to the table recognizing that you are in desperate need of God's grace, and that even as you examine yourself, God reveals sin to you in your own heart and perhaps a sin against a brother or sister, and you confess that sin and you seek His forgiveness, then that is not an unworthy manner. You see, the unworthiness Paul speaks of here is linked to the problem in Corinth. If you eat and drink without discerning the body, then you eat and drink judgment on yourself. I've titled this point, Just Desserts, because, uh, other than my own wordplay, there is a lovely wordplay here in this section that you see more clearly in the Greek around the word judge. To discern, the word that's translated there as discern, is also a form of judging. And both those words in our English translations come from the same root word in the Greek, discern and judge. And I think Paul is clearly here when he says, without discerning the body, talking of the body as both Jesus' body and our communion with him and the church as his body both the vertical and the horizontal aspects. And we saw uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, Paul talk about the body in this way. Our examination of ourselves is a discernment of whether our hearts are unrepentant before God. If we have discerned that our hearts do not desire, do not seek, do not, do not need Jesus. That is discerning with the vertical aspect. And it is also discerning whether we are in right standing with our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the reason why we say what we do when our church takes communion, which we're going to do a bit later. Certainly we examine ourselves and we discern the body with reference to whether we are unrepentant before God. 
And that is certainly something you can only do as an individual. I, I can't discern whether you're unrepentant or not. I don't have special goggles that can see into your heart. But when it comes to the main emphasis of the instruction in this passage, the focus is on how we relate to one another as the body of Christ. And the way we do that is through membership in our local church. And so like we talked about a few weeks ago, your participation in the invisible body, the global church, the universal church of God, is seen through your participation in the local body, the visible body. That is the local church. And so the application of this horizontal aspect of the Lord's Supper is carried out in your local church. And this is why our church has a membership uh, and and why we have a church covenant. Because if if I were to try and apply this to every Christian on the planet, it would be impossible. Now, of course, churches are meant to uh, help other churches that are in need. Churches who are doing well should seek to help other churches who aren't. That's what we see in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul is commending the different churches as they help one another, as they care for one another. But it's in your local church that this aspect of the Lord's Supper is lived out. Look around you. Who are the people that you've committed to? And when you come to the Lord's Supper each week, do you remind yourself of the commitment you have to these brothers and sisters for whom Christ died? And even more importantly, do you treat each one as made in the image of God, as somebody who is a brother or sister that has the same status as you in the new covenant? Now, here's the thing. Our church is pretty small. Small enough that you can still pretty much get to know every member in the church. Lord willing, though, it might one day be too big that you'd be able to do that. But do you realize that even if it got to that point where you don't know everybody so well in your church, where perhaps you don't even know some people in your church. Is there going to be a posture, an attitude, a commitment that you have to your brothers and sisters? Now, I'm not suggesting, as I've said, that you can be best friends with everybody in your church. But what if the church was big enough that you could fill your calendar with catch-ups with with people who are only the kind of people that you like and who are like you? Would you do that? Or can you see in the Lord's Supper here a commitment to getting to know, love, care for, support, help in time of need, pray for, and disciple fellow members with whom the only thing you have in common is Jesus? 
Would you be committed to serving, caring for, and loving members of your church that are harder to get along with and come from a very different pocket of society to you? And it's funny, I say that as a hypothetical, should the church get too big? And yet, even though our church is small, some of those challenges are still there, aren't they? We have members who are from different cultural backgrounds, different ages and different stages of life. Let me ask you, can you honestly say our church covenant about every person in the church? Even those that you find difficult. Are you just as committed to them? Of course, you're going to have some people that you click with and others that you don't. I'm not suggesting that you need to feel guilty about that. But when you look around at the gathering, when you look around every time we come together, do you see brothers and sisters for whom you would look after and care for those made in the same image of God that you are, who are in the same status in the new covenant. Brothers and sisters that you would sacrifice for. That's what it means to discern the horizontal aspect of Jesus' body. And Paul warns the Corinthians that if we don't do this truly, we might be disciplined by God. And that discipline could be illness or even death. But as he says in verse 32, the purpose of such discipline would be to save, to ensure that you keep persisting in faith so that you're not condemned along with the world, along with those who reject Jesus. As Psalm 94 verse 12 says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. It is far better to lose your life and gain Christ than to lose Christ and gain your life. Well, does this discipline, does this judgment still happen today? I'm sure it does. The Bible gives us no reason to think that it doesn't. Do we know exactly when someone might be getting disciplined for this? Nope. Sometimes, as Jesus taught in Luke 13, verses 1 to 5, things happen under the sovereign hand of God in a way that is not connected to sin. But, as Jesus taught in that passage, the point of these things happening, the point of being aware that God does this, is to realize the severity of God's judgment and repent. The purpose of Paul revealing this to us is not so that we can try and figure out whether somebody died or got sick because of their sin, but so that we might examine and judge ourselves truly, discerning the body rightly. And so we come to the final section. Let's read verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Uh, So let me just get out of the way at the outset. We have no idea what directions Paul is referring to. Um, You're welcome to write a book on it if you like but we just do not know. So God clearly didn't think we needed to know what Paul was referring to. But as you can see, this last section of the food chain is the conclusion of everything that Paul has said. That's why he says, so then. 
And so another possible translation of wait for one another, again, if you have a Bible with text notes, is share with. And given the context, this is a plausible reading. And I think it also makes sense of what Paul is saying in the context and how he says uh, that anyone who is hungry can eat at home. And so this is the conclusion of this whole passage because now that Paul has explained all the theology behind it, now that he's explained why this segregation in the Corinthian church was turning the practice of the Lord's Supper into not the Lord's Supper, he moves on to this practical application. And in other cultures where there are clearer divisions in society along status lines, in India, for example, where there are caste systems, there would be some very obvious applications. And in those societies, there are often very difficult things to work through. We generally don't have that problem, but there are still some obvious applications for us, aren't there? Here at Emmaus Road, we have lunch every week, in part because of this chapter. And if you're visiting today, please join us for lunch. We would love that. But, you know, lunch is provided by a member of our church and everyone shares the same table, shares the same meal. And so we don't really have the problem of, you know, people getting more food than others or, you know, others going hungry. But the issue that Paul's talking about can still be present, can't it? Like, where do you sit? How often do you actively choose to sit with someone differently, different to you. Or to zoom that out a bit more, is there someone that you've struggled to get along with at our church? Could it be that the reason that you have struggled with that relationship is because you've elevated in your mind the things that separate you rather than focusing on the Christ who unites you? Brothers and sisters, the kind of love that the world sits up and pays attention to is the kind that shows relationships built on the same foundation of the solid rock. In what ways might God be challenging you to grow in love for Christ's body? Now, if someone asks if you want to do lunch or dinner this week, don't take that as a sign that they think you're difficult. That would be uncharitable. But let me encourage us as we take the Lord's Supper each week while we remember and celebrate and are thankful for what Christ has done for us. Let's remember his church. Look around at the local body God has given you. Consider anew how our common unity in Christ unites us to Him and unites us to one another. Because that is an essential part of celebrating the Lord's Supper. Being a part of Jesus' body in the church is always going to be a challenge. We are people who are yet to be fully perfected. But to love Jesus is to love his body. And to love his body is to realize that the people God has given you in his church share the same thing about you that is the most important thing about you. You have a connection with your brothers and sisters in Christ that goes deeper than any connection you could possibly have with anyone outside his church. Think about it like this. If your best friend that you've known for decades 
and that you get along with like a house on fire doesn't follow Jesus, then you have a far deeper commonality with your fellow church member who is in every other way different to you. You have a deeper connection with them than with your best friend. The love that God desires for his people, the love that will beacon something out of this world to the world around us, the love that Christ paid for on the cross is a love that is born out of that unity. Perhaps getting along like a house on fire with your brothers and sisters might not be as unachievable as you thought. Perhaps all we need to do is rethink which commonalities we prize the most. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Do you love Jesus' body? Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you humble and hungry. Lord, we know and confess that we live this out imperfectly. And so we ask for your forgiveness and for the work of your Holy Spirit to continue to mold and shape us to be more and more like Christ. So that we might love your body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.